Why is hunger still a problem? Eric Holtemenez is the executive director of Food First, an organization seeking to end injustices that cause hunger. His latest book is titled The Foodie's Guide to Capitalism, Understanding the Political Economy of What We Eat. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Eric, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell me, what is the pressing problem that motivates your work? Well, I work for an organization called Food First, and our mission is to end the injustices that cause hunger. A very modest goal. Right, right. But it differentiates us from other uh, efforts to address hunger because we don't think that the cause of hunger is scarcity or the lack of food. Uh, There's more than enough food. There's one and a half times more than enough food to go around to feed every man, woman, and child on the planet. It's been that way for at least a half century. We have enough food available today, not even counting the ethanol and, um, and the feed that's produced. We have enough food to feed 10 billion people. So when we talk about, oh, we need to increase food production to feed 10 billion people by the year 2050, um, doesn't really make sense because we already produce that much food. So people are clearly going hungry for other reasons. And And we do hear about famines. And and we do hear about famines, and we hear a lot about food insecurity um, and about malnutrition. You know, if you put all that together, a third of the world is going hungry in some way. Um, It's one, even though we're producing all this food. So why is that happening? Um, The short answer is that the people who go hungry are those who are too poor to buy food at different times of year. And as you dig down even deeper, you find out that most of the hungry people in the world are farmers. And sad irony. Yes. And they produce 70% of the world's food. So why are they going going hungry? Yeah, what's going on there? The other part, well, the other clue is that most of these farmers are women. So most of the hungry people in the world are women and girls. And they produce most of the world's food. It's, it's not uh, industrial agriculture that's feeding the world. It's small-scale. It's small-scale farmers, poor people feeding poor people primarily. Um, and to some extent that's true in this country because most of the people in this country who are few food insecure by the definition of the United States Department of Agriculture, which means that you don't know where your next meal is coming from at least once in the month. At least once in the month, okay. Um, So there's severe food insecurity and mild food, etc. But uh, most of the people who are food insecure in this country, and it's one in seven, by the way, just reflective of how many people are hungry in the world, which is one in seven, about a billion out of seven billion. Um, Most of the people in the United States that are food insecure work in the food system. So they're the people who pick our crops, who process our food, who um, serve mm-hmm. our food. Uh, those are the people going hungry. And again, it's mostly women, and it's mostly people of color. So there is an intersection of race, systems of race, systems of food, and uh, economic systems. Does your work sit at the intersection of all those places? 
Yes, absolutely. And I would say um, sexism as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you explain the fact that women are going hungry more than men? Girls are going hungry more than boys. Uh, that's true worldwide, and that's true in this country. And I think that uh, we often forget when we look at these statistics where they came from. You know, so clearly we have a, uh, a racialized food system, which is also gendered um, in ways which are, are bad for women and people of color. Uh, this isn't a problem of diversity. This isn't a problem of, well, let's just get the right mix of people at the table. Um, this is a structural problem because basically this has come from uh, our food system, which has been constructed over the last 200 years, which is a capitalist food system um, built on exploitation. So you, you talk about three food regimes. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? Yeah. So think about a food regime as all of the institutions and rules which govern how we produce and consume our food at a global scale. So the first food regime was the colonial food regime. And in that, the imperial powers subjugated the colonies in Africa, Asia, and the Americas, mm-hmm. uh, who were then made to produce raw materials and food cheaply so that the Imperial North could industrialize. Now, that's true on a global scale. It's also true within this country, when you think about it, between the Industrial North and the Agrarian South. Mm-hmm. The South, of course, built on, on slavery. Uh, the North built on uh, indentured labor, but primarily with industrial products. Um, the second food regime it comes after World War II, in which the North begins to produce food. In other words, industrializes the food system, industrializes agriculture, and begins to overproduce food, and so has to send this food out to new markets. Mm -hmm. And they send it to the global south. Um, So then food becomes an export. Food becomes an export, exactly. But the global south already has food. So they have to destroy the local markets for food production in order to be able to feed people, to be able to say people are hungry and we need to save them from hunger. And so we're going to give them all this food. So it's actually uh, done with food aid. Food aid from the overproduction in this country is sent to the global south and sold. It's not given away, actually. It's given to governments who then sell that food in local currencies at very low prices that undercut the prices of production in those countries. So they drive local farmers out of business and make people in the global south dependent on food coming from the global north. So food that comes in as aid actually destroys local economies. and Destroys their capacity to produce their own food and actually creates a lot of hunger. So all those farmers that used to feed themselves and a few other people, then they become, they enter the ranks of the hungry Mm -hmm. and become dependent on food aid. So the third food regime which that's called the post-war food regime. But the third food regime, which we're in today, is often called the corporate food regime or the neoliberal food regime. Things get very complicated after that. Basically, you have flows of food going north, going south, um, but you have tremendous corporate concentration of power over the food system. And you have the monopolization 
of uh, seeds, the monopolization of inputs, the monopolization of retail outlets, um, which is continuing to this day. And a profit-driven model for all of that. Yeah, what's important to realize is that um, this model is based on demand. It's not based on need. And that's what drives it. So there's plenty of need, but it's not able to express itself in, in monetary demand. So people are poor, there's a lot of need there, but they don't have money, so they can't enter into the market and into that demand. And that's the, you know, the primary problem with the food system. So earlier we were talking about the intersection of multiple systems that are at play when we talk about hunger and food insecurity, uh, gender, race, and all that. Could you tell a story that just helps to uh, put a face with a name for some of that? Sure, sure. Well, let's tell the story of... uh, my friend Gabriel, I used to work in Mexico. And so my friend Gabriel um, was a very poor farmer and, uh, you know, had been driven off the, uh, the good land, bottom land, up onto the hillside. Um, and that was because the bottom land was developed with, uh, you know, big machinery and irrigation and pesticides and the new seeds and one which none of which he could afford and so he was eventually driven off his land and up onto the hillside um, very precarious and um, but still he was able to produce some food uh, was able to buy fertilizers uh, uh, the bank extended him some credit he bought some fertilizers he got out of crop but because the soils were so fragile very quickly, those fertilizers destroyed the natural fertility of his soil, and so his production uh, levels went down. He had to borrow more money, add more so fertilizer. he's entering into this competitive system. Ba- entering into what we call the treadmill, and um, investing more and more and getting less and less until he finally went bankrupt. And what would happen would be he'd, he'd sell his crops right away um, when the price for crops was low. And then six months, and because he was poor, he'd sell all of his crop. Six months later, he had to buy food back, and then it'd become quite expensive. And so, and then depending, he had to depend on, you know, imported foods from the U.S., which is subsidized. Of course, his production wasn't subsidized. The food coming from the United States, quite subsidized. Um, So you can see that the first thing was colonized was his land. The second thing that was colonized was his diet. And then eventually Gabriel had to look for work, couldn't find it, and um, immigrated to the United States, where he ended up working on big um, corporate farms in the Central Valley of California um, for peanuts and having to buy very cheap processed food that is high in in, uh, carbohydrates um, and so his labor is colonized, and his stomach is colonized, um, and, you know, sort of the cycle is complete, and he will never escape poverty that way, and will always, and now suffers from, you know, not only the, the third world problems of not getting enough food, but the first world problems of, which have been exported to the third world now, of bad food. Mm-hmm. And so getting food but being um, malnourished at the same time and suffering from diet-related diseases and hypertension. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
so this is the type of food system which is and 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 of course he doesn't have any papers and so he's subject to all kinds of labor abuse and wage theft and this type of thing but our food system depends on this yeah and our food system would crash tomorrow if as the current administration wants we would um um, basically send all of the immigrants home or and send the children of the immigrants to their parents' countries, um, our food system would crash. So would our hospitality system, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, we don't think about that because we have invisibilized the tremendous contribution of these folks to our way of life. Yeah. That reminds me of a couple things. Thinking about his story as a farmer reminds me of some of the stories that I've read about um, folks who own chicken farms and the way that that's been industrialized to undercut the, the person who actually owns the farm and make them debt-dependent um, until they go bankrupt. Um, no, absolutely. It's important to also understand that um, this exploitation is not reserved just for people from the global south or just for people of color but for poor people everywhere mm -hmm. of all colors. And um, the, the poultry contracts, which you refer to, are futile. The, the farmer becomes a serf on their own land. They don't own the facility. They own the land. Let me take that back. The bank owns the land. Yeah. They've got the mortgage. It's heavily mortgaged. They're right? heavily mortgaged. And then they're in debt up to their eyeballs with the facilities. And they don't actually you know, even own the birds. I mean, they're, they're renting these birds. Mm -hmm. And the pullets, and then, you know, when they, when they sell the broilers and stuff. And if the bird dies, you know, they're on the hook for that. The mm. company's not on the hook for that. Yeah. So it really is a, a, a modern form of serfdom which has taken root within our food system. Yeah. The other thing that came to mind, uh, I work with a group of women in Congo, and a lot of their food issues sound really similar. Um, including the story of their daughters going hungry, because if they have to choose how many of their children get to eat, it's the boys who eat so that they can go to school, and it's the girls who go hungry and farm uh, while the boys are being educated. Right. Um, so it's truly global in scale. Right. Well, that's why um, the movement for food sovereignty is growing around the world. And now it started in the global south. And food Can you sovereignty? briefly describe what that means? Yes. I'm going to describe food sovereignty by comparing it to food security because we talk a lot about food security. Food security is simply access to food. And if you don't have access, then you don't have food security. Well, you can be food secure in jail, um, but that doesn't mean you're food sovereign. Food sovereignty is about controlling your food and also controlling the wealth in the value chain of food production and consumption. So our food uh, system, the global food system is a six trillion dollar a year uh, enterprise. Wow. It's very, very wealthy. The problem is all the wealth in the system is concentrated at the top in very few hands, a few monopolies. And all of the work is concentrated at the bottom um, with everybody else. Um, so until, and what it, the, it results in food insecurity and hunger and malnutrition on a global scale, practically a third of the, of the world's population. Um, one in seven in the United States is food insecure. You know, we're the richest country in the world, and we produce more food than anybody. 
And how is it that that uh, one in seven are going hungry? How is it possible how that people don't know possible? where exactly. a meal is coming from? Exactly. Yeah. So um, food, the answer to food insecurity is not simply food security because that can be given and taken away. Well, the answer to that is food sovereignty, which is taking back control over our food systems. So we can... Um, produce in the ways that we wish to produce, the types of food that we want to have, the healthy food that we want to have, um, and also partake in the wealth of that whole system of production and consumption. So the food sovereignty movement's growing around the world. It started in the global south, started in Latin America, um, where you have uh, started with uh, peasant uh, movements, you know, the the peasantry in the United in um, the global South, the farmers are the majority of the population, half to eighty percent in some countries. So I assume primarily small scale farms. Small scale farmers, right? And these are the ones who have advanced the cause of food sovereignty. In the United States, you know, we have more people in jail than we have on the land. Less than two percent of our population farms. So food sovereignty, you know, was, was slow to take, to take root here, but it actually began to take root amongst consumers and in urban populations who were suffering, you know, uh, epidemical levels of diet-related disease and so had to take back control over their food system, to take back control over their diet and their health. And since then, it's also spread out into you know urban areas with uh, small farmers and small farm organizations and now it's amongst those communities it's very uh, uh, it's a very normal thing to hear about people talk about food sovereignty and how do we get it and how do we attain it so can you share a story about um, if there's a community that comes to mind in North America who's doing this in a creative way that you can see an impact in the broader food system yeah it's that's a um, Difficult. I would say it's in construction. Uh, it's a process, and I I don't know that food sovereignty is is ever going to be complete. You know, it's something we're always trying to do and figuring out. But um, for example, in Washington State, there is a brand new farm worker union, um, and it uh, it started with an organization called Community to Community, who is working with. Um, people who pick the berries in Washington State. And the, they were being horribly exploited. And so they went on strike and uh, tried to form a union. And, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing to do in this country, mm-hmm. to form a union. People oh, have to sign yeah. on, and, and there's all kinds of And who can back. be part of that union? Exactly. And how vulnerable are they in making right. that decision? And, and most of these folks um, are undocumented, which mm-hmm. makes it more difficult. Yep. So... They were successful, but then the next, so they began to have more control over their labor and over their housing, because this is farm labor, they usually live in in, uh, farm labor housing. Then they um, decided they needed land. And the reason they wanted to have land was because they realized that when when they went on strike, they were vulnerable because they had to buy food, and they didn't have an income. Mm -hmm. So now they've attained some land. And it's not they want to stop being farm workers, but they also want to produce their own food so that they have a better bargaining position, they have more control within the food system, 
to for uh, to forge a better livelihood. So if the system fails them, they won't starve? Exactly. Or if they have to go on strike, they can hang in there. It's called Familias Unidas por la Justicia, Families United for Justice. And it's quite an extraordinary union and, and, and built much very much on the legacy of the United Farm Workers. That's one example. There are many examples, uh, particularly in, in urban areas where people have, um, for example, in, in Oakland, where I live, uh, we formed a food policy council, uh, very broad based from all sectors of society and the faith community. And, and we basically uh, came together and we first we had a, uh, a food system assessment. And we discovered two very interesting things. One was that there was a thousand acres of land suitable for agriculture within the city of Oakland hmm. that was abandoned. Um, and we discovered also that between that and people's yards and um, public and private land, that Oakland could provide at least at least a third of its fresh fruits and vegetables and its eggs. Wow. Right? And its poultry. So um, then we had to uh, advance policy proposals and regulatory proposals to the city so that people could um, grow food in the front yards, not just the backyards, so that they could process food, so they could sell food um, and address the uh, in food insecurity in their own communities. So very much sort of taking back f uh, at a very sort of basic scale control over the food system, uh, legislation around local food trucks, because that's usually the entry um, act, uh, economic activity for so many uh, poor people and immigrants. Um, uh, they, we started um, uh, incubator kitchens so that could, people could learn to start restaurants and whatnot. So all of this uh, has sort of two, three, I would say, main elements. One is the practice, these innovations that, that people need at the scale that they need them. Um, two is changing the rules. In other words, you know, the food regime is a big thing, but you can change the local rules yeah. for your local food regime to support a particular kind of um, model of production and consumption, which actually serves poor people rather than corporations. And the third, I think, is really important, and that is the reconstruction of society and the reconstruction of the public sphere, that area outside the market where we come together and we make decisions about how we want to live, about how we want our communities to function, how we want our schools to be, about the health, education, and welfare at our local level. And we discuss these things and we make the decisions on the basis of what's best and what's right. And we don't just leave it up to the market to make the decisions for us. But we have frank conversations about the common good and what we want life together to look like. Exactly. Yeah. And it forces us to come together and face some of the things which divide us. The racism, the sexism, the classism, all these things which divide us and allow the market to run roughshod over our livelihoods and our communities. So if we can come together and, and overcome those things which divide us, which is very hard work, um, then we can begin to carve out the type of communities which we need. So communities of faith care about a lot of the issues that we're talking about. Um, and the individuals within those communities of faith, at least a lot of them that I know, um, have chickens in their backyard or they're hobbyist gardeners or their churches are starting community gardens. Um, sounds like some of your work is with faith-based organizations. Um, what do you see as one of the most meaningful ways that faith communities 
can be actively engaged in these issues? Well, that that uh, communities of faith are actively engaged in these issues is very good news, first of all. And it's also not new, is it? They've always been engaged in these issues. But I think the challenges today are um, pressing and are all the more difficult. Um, we need to build communities of trust. And I think the communities of faith have a special role to play in that, not just within their own faith community, but within the larger community. Uh, we need to rebuild the public sphere desperately. And I think communities of faith have a very special role to play there because they can help us convene. They can help us come together with all our diversity uh, because that is the challenge. We're so fragmented. You know, it used to be, you know, unions and political parties kind of led the way. Well, that doesn't work anymore. We do have unions. We do have political parties. But they're pretty dysfunctional. And it's not that they're not important. They are. But they're not enough anymore. We have many other groups um, in society now that are, you know, the, the environmentalists. We have the women's movement. We have movements around gender. Um, and that's great. But they're very fragmented. And if we really expect to make the changes, not just at the local level, but create political will at the state and national level. And global level. And the global level. Then we need to build powerful, diverse social movements to create that political will. So I think that communities of faith have a very special role because of their serenity, <laughs> because of um, the acceptance that is inherent in, in, in faith. Um, and quite frankly, because of the ministry of love. This work is hard. And, I mean, farming is hard. Mm -hmm. um, changing the way we farm is hard. Changing our food system is really hard. Addressing the issues of racism and sexism and classism is really painful and hard to do, not just within our organizations, but within ourselves. Um, dismantling white male privilege is really tough, um, and tough for white males. Um, unless we are, unless we love our community, unless we love nature, unless we love our God, we'll never be able to do it. We just won't make it. You can't make it without love. And this is one of the things I've learned over many years of struggle. Um, and even though I don't come from a faith-based community. Yeah, I was about to ask you, do you have a faith story that intersects with your work? The, the faith story that I'm telling you is, is basically this. I worked with um, Mayan farmers in Central America who are deeply religious, deeply spiritual people um, who assimilated Christianity easily without abandoning their, their, their prior religions. Hmm. Um, and so for whom everything they do is an act of faith, the planting, the rituals, the interactions within the community, with family, with elders, or with authorities, it's all um, a, an exercise of faith. And they explained to me at one time what their movement was. And they said, our movement wa walks on two legs, innovation and solidarity. We are inventing our new agriculture, and we share it with each other, and we help each other. It works with two hands, one for production and one for protection. 
We have to protect Mother Nature. Otherwise, where will we produce? We have two eyes to see the future with us in it. We're peasant farmers. We don't want to disappear. We want to be a part of the future. We have a mouth. We can talk. We can pronounce. We can take positions. We can speak. We can, we can debate. We can convince. And then they said, we have a heart to love. And they were the ones who taught me that without love, we can't do this. One last lighter question. Mm -hmm. So your book is titled The Foodie's Guide to Capitalism. Yes. Who's a foodie? And is it just for them? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there was a lot of uh, arguing about the title. And what I wanted to do is put in two words that were kind of uh, jarring. And one is just the recognition that we have a capitalist food system. And so if we expect to change it, we're going to have to learn about capitalism. So people have to learn about that. That's not so hard for people in the food justice community to grasp. But I think people who are really benefiting from the capitalist system and enjoying the great food of the capitalist system as are foodies, that might be something that uh, wouldn't necessarily uh, grab their attention. Why should we study capitalism? It's doing just fine. Um, But foodies, self-described foodies uh, in the good food movement or the foodie movement, have a great um, redeeming quality, which is, aside from the fact that they like great food, which who doesn't, (laughs) um, they celebrate where food comes from. And if you do that, then you have to look at the farmers. And then you have to look at the peasant farmers and the woman farmers who produce most of the world's food and from which the great traditional cuisine comes from and look at the conditions under which they live. And then one has to ask why. And there's no way to answer that unless you understand the system of capitalism and how our food system and our our capitalist system have co-evolved. And um, you cannot change one without changing the other. So that's why the the Foodies Guide to Capitalism was trying to um, incorporate the, the breadth of the audience that we want to address. Yeah, pull in some perhaps unlikely conversation partners. Absolutely. Great. Eric, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to The Distillery. Interviews are conducted by me, Sherry Osting. I'm Garrett Mostowski, and I'm in charge of production. And I'm Christy Holly, and I'm the creative designer. Like what you're hearing? Let us know by rating us on iTunes. The Distillery Podcast is part of The Thread, a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find more episodes and other content at thethread.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.